11. Together on the same principle, no state seeming able to preserve a balance for long, new forces arise, the balance is upset, and the state totters until a new equilibrium has been found, it would seem, however, to be the aim of life to strive after balance, any violent deviation from which is accompanied by calamity, and in art we have the same play of opposing factors, straight lines and curves, light and dark, warm and cold color oppose each other, were the balance between them perfect, the result would be dull and dead, but if the balance is very much out, the eye is disturbed and the effect to disquieting, it will naturally be in pictures that aim at repose that this balance will be most perfect, in more exciting subjects less will be necessary, but some amount should exist in every picture, no matter how turbulent its motive, as in good tragedy the horror of the situation is never allowed to overbalance the beauty of the treatment. Let us consider in the first place the balance between straight lines and curves. The richer and fuller the curves, the more severe should be the straight lines that balance them, if perfect repose is desired. But if the subject demands excessive movement and life, of course there will be less necessity for the balancing influence of straight lines. And on the other hand, if the subject demands an excessive repose and contemplation, the bias will be on the side of straight lines, but a picture composed entirely of rich, rolling curves is too disquieting a thing to contemplate, and would become very irritating, of the two extremes, one composed entirely of straight lines would be preferable to a one with no squareness to relieve the richness of the curves, for straight lines are significant of the deeper and more permanent things of life, of the powers that govern and restrain, and of infinity, while the rich curves that island curves the farthest removed from the straight line seem to be expressive of uncontrolled energy and the more exuberant joys of life. Vice may be excess in any direction, but asceticism has generally been accepted as a nobler vice than voluptuousness. The Rococo art of the 18th century is an instance of the excessive use of curved forms, and, like all excesses in the joys of life, it is vicious and is the favorite style of decoration in vulgar places of entertainment. The excessive use of straight lines and square forms may be seen in some ancient Egyptian architecture, but this severity was originally, no doubt, softened by the use of color, and in any case it is nobler and finer than the vicious cleverness of Rococo art. We have seen how the Greeks balanced the straight lines of their architectural forms with the rich lines of the sculpture which they used so lavishly on their temples, but the balance was always kept on the side of the square forms and never on the side of undue roundness and it is on this side that the balance would seem to be in the finest art. Even the finest curves are those that approach the straight line rather than the circle, that are on the side of flatnesses rather than roundnesses. What has been said about the balance of straight lines and curves applies equally well to tones. If for straight lines you substitute flat tones, and for curved lines gradated tones, the deeper, more permanent things find expression in the wider, flatter tones while an excess of gradations makes for prettiness, if not for the gross roundnesses of vicious modeling, often when a picture is hopelessly out of gear and mucked up, as they say in the studio, it can be got on the right road again by reducing it to a basis of flat tones, going over it and painting out the gradations, getting it back to a simpler equation from which the right road to completion can be more readily seen. Overmuch concern with the gradations of the smaller modeling is a very common reason of pictures and drawings getting out of gear. The less expenditure of tone values you can express your modeling with, the better. As a general rule, the balance in the finest work is usually on the side of flat tones rather than on the side of gradated tones. Work that errs on the side of gradations, like that of grooves, however popular its appeal, 
is much poorer stuff than work that errs on the side of flatness and tone, like Giotto and the Italian primitives, or Pavis de Chavins among the moderns. There is a balance of tone set up also between light and dark, between black and white in the scale of tone, pictures that do not go far in the direction of light, starting from a middle tone, should not go far in the direction of dark either. In this respect note the pictures of Whistler, a great master in matters of tone, his lights seldom approach anywhere near white, and, on the other hand, his darks never approach black in tone, when the highest lights are low in tone, the darkest darks should be high in tone. Painters like Rembrandt, whose pictures when fresh must have approached very near white in the highlights, also approach black in the darks, and nearer our own time. Frank Hole forced the whites of his pictures very high and correspondingly the darks were very heavy, and when this balance is kept there is a rightness about it that is instinctively felt. We do not mean that the amount of light tones in a picture should be balanced by the amount of dark tones but that there should be some balance between the extremes of light and dark used in the tone scheme of a picture. The old rule was, I believe, that a picture should be two-thirds light and one-third dark, but I do not think there is any rule to be observed here, there are too many exceptions, and no mention is made of half-tones, like all so-called laws in art. This rule is capable of many apparent exceptions. There is the white picture in which all the tones are high but in some of the most successful of these you will generally find spots of intensely dark pigment. Turner was fond of these light pictures in his later manner, but he usually put in some dark spot, such as the black gondolas in some of his Venetian pictures, that illustrate the law of balance we are speaking of, and are usually put in excessively dark in proportion as the rest of the picture is excessively light. The successful one-tone pictures are generally painted in the middle tones, and thus do not in any way contradict our principle of balance. One is tempted at this point to wander a little into the province of color, where the principle of balance of which we are speaking is much felt, the scale here being between warm and cold colors. If you divide the solar spectrum roughly into half, you will have the reds, oranges, and yellows on one side, and the purples, blues, and greens on the other, the former being roughly the warm and the latter the cold colors. The clever manipulation of the opposition between these warm and cold colors is one of the chief means used in giving vitality to coloring, but the point to notice here is that the further your coloring goes in the direction of warmth, the further it will be necessary to go in the opposite direction, to write the balance, that is how it comes about that painters like Titian, who loved a warm, glowing, golden coloring, so often had to put a mass of the coldest blue in their pictures, Gensbro's Blue Boy. Although done in defiance of Reynolds' principle, is no contradiction of our rule. For although the boy has a blue dress all the rest of the picture is warm brown and so the balance is kept. It is the failure to observe this balance that makes so many of the red-coated huntsmen and soldiers' portraits in our exhibitions so objectionable. They are too often painted on a dark, hot, burnt sienna and black background, with nothing but warm colors in the flesh, and see, with the result that the screaming heat is intolerable. With a hot mass of red like a huntsman's coat in your picture, the coolest color should be looked for everywhere else, seen in a November landscape, how well a huntsman's coat looks, but then, how cold and gray is the coloring of the landscape, the right thing to do is to support your red with as many cool and neutral tones as possible and avoid hot shadows, with so strong a red, bloom might be too much of a contrast, unless your canvas was large enough to admit of its being introduced at some distance from the red. Most painters, of course, are content to keep two middle courses, never going very far in the warm or cold directions, and, 
Undoubtedly, much more freedom of action is possible here, although the results may not be so powerful, but when beauty and refinement of sentiment rather than force are desired, the middle range of coloring that is to say, all colors partly neutralized by admixture with their opposites is much safer, there is another form of balance that must be although it is connected more with the subject matter of art, as it concerns the mental significance of objects rather than rhythmic qualities possessed by lines and masses, I refer to the balance there is between interest and mass. The all-absorbing interest of the human figure makes it often when quite minute in scale balance the weight and interest of a great mass. Diagram XXVII is a rough instance of what is meant. Without the little figure the composition would be out of balance, but the weight of interest centered upon that lonely little person is enough to write the balance occasioned by the great mass of trees on the left. Figures are largely used by landscape painters in this way, and are of great use in restoring balance in a picture. And lastly, there must be a balance struck between variety and unity. A great deal has already been said about this, and it will only be necessary to recapitulate here that to variety is due all the expression or the picturesque, of the joyous energy of life, and all that makes the world such a delightful place, but that to a unity belongs the relating of this variety to the underlying bedrock principles that support it in nature and in all good art. It will depend on the nature of the artist and on the nature of his theme how far this underlying unity will dominate the expression in his work, and how far it will be overlaid and hidden behind a rich garment of variety. But both ideas must be considered in his work. If the unity of his conception is allowed to exclude variety entirely, it will result in a dead abstraction. And if the variety is to be allowed none of the restraining influences of unity, it will develop into a riotous extravagance. XBI Rhythm Proportion rules and canons of proportion designed to reduce to a mathematical formula the things that move us in beautiful objects, have not been a great success, the beautiful will always defy such clumsy analysis, but however true it is that beauty of proportion must ever be the result of the finer senses of the artist, it is possible that canons of proportion, such as those of the human body, may be of service to the artist by offering some standard from which he can depart at the dictates of his artistic instinct. There appears to be no doubt that the ancient sculptors used some such system, and many of the Renaissance painters were interested in the subject, Leonardo da Vinci having much to say about it in his book. Like all scientific knowledge in art, it fails to trap the elusive something that is the vital essence of the whole matter, but such scientific knowledge does help to bring one's work up to a high point of mechanical perfection from which one's artistic instinct can soar with a better chance of success than if no scientific scaffolding had been used in the initial building up. Yet, however perfect your system, don't forget that the life, the dither, will still have to be accounted for, and no science will help you here. The idea that certain mathematical proportions or relationships underlie the phenomena we call beauty is very ancient, and too abstruse to trouble us here, but undoubtedly proportion the quantitative relation of the parts to each other and to the whole, forms a very important part in the impression works of art and objects give us, and should be a subject of the greatest consideration in planning your work. The mathematical relationship of these quantities is a subject that has always fascinated scholars, who have measured the antique statues accurately and painstakingly to find the secret of their charm. Science, by showing that different sounds and different colors are produced by waves of different lengths, and that therefore different colors and sounds can be expressed in terms of numbers, has certainly opened the door to a new consideration of the subject of beauty in relation to mathematics, and the result of such an inquiry, if it is being or has been carried on, will be of much interest.
but there is something chilling to the artist in an array of dead figures, for he has a consciousness that the life of the whole matter will never be captured by such mechanical means. The question we are interested to ask here is, are there particular sentiments connected with the different relations of quantities, their proportions, as we found there were in connection with different arrangements of lines and masses, have abstract proportions any significance in art, as we found abstract line and mass arrangements had, it is a difficult thing to be definite about, and I can only give my own feeling on the matter, but I think in some degree they have, proportion can be considered from our two points of view of unity and variety, in so far as the proportions of any picture or object resolve themselves into a simple, easily grasped unity of relationship, a sense of repose and sublimity is produced, in so far as the variety of proportion in the different parts is assertive and prevents the eye grasping the arrangement as a simple whole, a sense of the lively restlessness of life and activity is produced, in other words, as we found in line arrangements, unity makes for sublimity, while variety makes for the expression of life, of course the scale of the object will have something to do with this, that is to say, the most sublimely proportioned dog kennel could never give us the impression of sublimity produced by a great temple, in pictures the scale of the work is not of so great importance, a painting or drawing having the power of giving the impression of great size on a small scale, the proportion that is most easily grasped is the half to equal parts, this is the most devoid of variety, and therefore of life, and is only used when an effect of great repose and aloofness from life is wanted, and even then, never without some variety in the minor parts to give vitality, the third and the quarter, and in fact any equal proportions, are others that are easily grasped and partake in a lesser degree of the same qualities as the half, so that equality of proportion should be avoided except on those rare occasions when effects remote from nature and life are desired. Nature seems to abhor equalities, never making two things alike or the same proportion if she can help it. All systems founded on equalities, as are so many modern systems of social reform, are man's work, the products of a machine-made age. For this is the difference between nature and the machine, nature never produces two things alike. The machine never produces two things different. Man could solve the social problem do moral if you could produce him equal units, but if all men were alike and equal. Where would be the life and fun of existence? It would depart with the variety, and in proportion, as in life. Variety is the secret of vitality, only to be suppressed where a static effect is wanted. In architecture equality of proportion is more often met with, as the static qualities of repose are of more importance here than in painting. One meets it on all fine buildings in such things as rows of columns and windows of equal size and distances apart, or the continual repetition of the same forms in moldings and see, but even here, in the best work, some variety is allowed to keep the effect from being quite dead, the columns on the outside of a Greek pediment being nearer together and leaning slightly inwards, and the repeated forms of windows, columns, and moldings being infinitely varied in themselves, but although you often find repetitions of the same forms equidistant in architecture, it is seldom that equality of proportion is observable in the main distribution of the large masses. Let us take our simple type of composition, and in diagram XXVIII, A put the horizon across the center and an upright post cutting it in the middle of the picture, and let us introduce two spots that may indicate the position of birds in the upper spaces on either side of this. Here we have a maximum of equality and the deadest and most static of results. To see these diagrams properly it is necessary to cover over with some pieces of no tea paper all but the one being considered, as they affect each other when seen together 
and the quality of their proportion is not so readily observed. Illustration, plate XLVII, BANSIDEI Madonna, by Raphael National Gallery a typical example of static balance in composition. Photo Hanstenblin many pictures of the Madonna, when a hush and reverence are desired rather than exuberant life. The figure is put in the center of the canvas. Equality of proportion existing between the spaces on either side of her, but having got the repose this central is on gives, everything is done to conceal this equality, and variety in the contours on either side, and in any figures there may be, is carefully sought. Raphael's Anside a Madonna, in the National Gallery, is an instance of this page 230. You have first the central on of the figure of the Madonna with the throne on which she sits, exactly in the middle of the picture. Not only is the throne in the center of the picture, but its width is exactly that of the spaces on either side of it, giving us three equal proportions across the picture. Then you have the circular lines of the arches behind, curves possessed of the least possible amount of variety and therefore the calmest and most reposeful, while the horizontal lines of the steps and the vertical lines of the throne and architecture, and also the rows of hanging beads give further emphasis to this infinity of calm. But when we come to the figures this symmetry has been varied everywhere. All the heads swing towards the right. While the lines of the drapery swing freely in many directions. The swing of the heads towards the right is balanced and the eye brought back to equilibrium by the strongly insisted upon staff of St. Nicholas on the right. The staff of St. John necessary to balance this line somewhat. Is very slightly insisted on. Being represented transparent as if made of glass so as not to increase the swing to the right occasioned by the heads. It is interesting to note the fruit introduced at the last moment in the right-hand lower corner, dragged in as it were, to restore the balance occasioned by the figure of the Christ being on the left. In the writer's humble opinion the extremely obvious artifice with which the lines had been balanced, and the severity of the convention of this composition generally, are out of harmony with the amount of naturalistic detail and particularly of solidity allowed in the treatment of the figures and accessories. The small amount of truth to visual nature in the work of earlier men went better with the formality of such compositions, with so little of the variety of life in their treatment of natural appearances. One was not led to demand so much of the variety of life in the arrangement. It is the simplicity and remoteness from the full effect of natural appearances in the work of the early Italian schools that made their painting such a ready medium for the expression of religious subjects. This atmosphere of otherworldliness where the music of line and color was uninterrupted by any aggressive look of real things is a better convention for the expression of such ideas and emotions. In BNC the proportions of the third and the quarter are shown, producing the same static effect as the half, although not so completely. At DEF the same number of lines and spots as we have at ABC have been used, but varied as to size and position, so that they had no obvious mechanical relationship. The result is an expression of much more life and character. At GHI more lines and spots have been added. At G they are equidistant and dead from lack of variety, while at H and I they are varied to a degree that prevents the eye grasping any obvious relationship between them. They have consequently a look of liveliness and life very different from A, B, C or G. It will be observed that as the amount of variety increases so does the life and liveliness of the impression. In these diagrams a certain static effect is kept up throughout, on account of our lines being vertical and horizontal only, which lines, as we saw in an earlier chapter, are the calmest we have, but despite this. I think the added life due to the variety in the proportions is sufficiently apparent in the diagrams to prove the point we wish to make. As a contrast to the infinite calm of Raphael's Madonna, 
we have reproduced Tintoretto's finding of the body of St. Mark, in the Brera Gallery, Milan, here all is life and movement, the proportions are infinitely varied, nowhere does the eye grasp any obvious mathematical relationship, we have the same semicircular arches as in the Raphael, but not symmetrically placed, and their lines everywhere varied, and their calm effect destroyed by the flickering lights playing about them. Note the great emphasis given to the outstretched hand of the powerful figure of the Apostle on the left by the lines of the architecture and the line of arm of the kneeling figure in the center of the picture converging on this hand and leading the eye immediately to it. There is here no static symmetry, all is energy and force. Starting with this arresting arm, the eye is led down the majestic figure of St. Mark, past the recumbent figure, and across the picture by means of the band of light on the ground to the important group of frightened figures on the right, and from them on to the figures engaged in lowering a corpse from its tomb, or, following the direction of the outstretched arm of St. Mark, we are led by the lines of the architecture to this group straight away, and back again by means of the group on the right and the band of light on the ground, the quantities are not placed in reposeful symmetry about the canvas, as was the case in the Raphael, but are thrown off apparently haphazard from lines leading the eye round the picture. Note also the dramatic intensity given by the strongly contrasted light and shade, and how Tintorito has enjoyed the weird effect of the two figures looking into a tomb with a light, their shadows being thrown on the lid they hold open, at the far end of the room, this must have been an amazingly new piece of realism at the time, and is wonderfully used, to give an eerie effect to the darkened end of the room, with his boundless energy and full enjoyment of life, Tintorito's work naturally shows a strong leaning towards variety and his amazing compositions are a liberal education in the innumerable and unexpected ways in which a panel can be filled, and should be carefully studied by students. Illustration, play XLIX. The finding of the body of street mark T-I-N-D-O-R-E-D-O-B-R-E-D-A. Milan compare with Raphael's Anside A Madonna, and note how energy and movement take the place of static calm in the balance of this composition. Photo Anderson a pleasing proportion that often occurs in nature and art is one that may be roughly stated in figures as that between 5 and 8. In such a proportion the eye sees no mathematical relationship. Were it less than 5, it would be too near the proportion of 4 to 8 or one third the total length. A dull proportion, or were it more, it would be approaching too near equality of proportion to be quite satisfactory. I have seen a proportional compass, imported from Germany giving a relationship similar to the sunset to contain the secret of good proportion. There is certainly something remarkable about it, and in the appendix, page 289 transcribers note, appendix, you will find some further interesting facts about this. The variety of proportions in a building, a picture, or a piece of sculpture should always be under the control of a few simple, dominant quantities that simplify the appearance and give it a unity which is readily grasped except where violence and lack of repose are wanted. The simpler the proportion island the more sublime will be the impression, and the more complicated, the livelier and more vivacious the effect. From a few well-chosen large proportions the eye may be led on to enjoy the smaller varieties, but in good proportion the lesser parts are not allowed to obtrude, but are kept in subordination to the main dispositions on which the unity of the effect depends. XVII portrait drawing There is something in every individual that is likely for a long time to defy the analysis of science. When you have summed up the total of atoms or electrons or whatever it is that goes to the making of the tissues and also the innumerable complex functions performed by the different parts, you have not yet got on the track of the individual that governs the whole performance. 
the effect of this personality on the outward form, and the influence it has in modifying the aspect of body and features, are the things that concern the portrait draftsman, the seizing on and expressing forcefully the individual character of the sitter, as expressed by his outward appearance. This character expression in form has been thought to be somewhat antagonistic to beauty, and many sitters are shy of the particular characteristics of their own features. The fashionable photographer, knowing this, carefully stipples out of his negative any striking characteristics in the form of his sitter the negative may show, but judging by the result, it is doubtful whether any beauty has been gained, and certain that interest and vitality have been lost in the process, whatever may be the nature of beauty. It is obvious that what makes one object more beautiful than another is something that is characteristic of the appearance of the one and not of the other, so that some close study of individual characteristics must be the aim of the artist who would seek to express beauty, as well as the artist who seeks the expression of character and professes no interest in beauty. Catching the likeness, as it is called, is simply seizing on the essential things that belong only to a particular individual and differentiate that individual from others and expressing them in a forceful manner. There are certain things that are common to the whole species. Likeness to a common type, the individual likeness is not in this direction but at the opposite pole to it. It is one of the most remarkable things connected with the amazing subtlety of appreciation possessed by the human eye, that of the millions of heads in the world, and probably of all that had ever existed in the world, no to look exactly alike, when one considers how alike they are and how very restricted is the range of difference between them. Is it not remarkable how quickly the eye recognizes one person from another? It is more remarkable still how one sometimes recognizes a friend not seen for many years, and whose appearance has changed considerably in the meantime. And this likeness that we recognize is not so much as is generally thought a matter of the individual features. If one sees the eye alone, the remainder of the face being covered, It is almost impossible to recognize even a well-known friend, or tell whether the expression is that of laughing or crying, and again, how difficult it is to recognize anybody when the eyes are masked and only the lower part of the face visible. Illustration, plate L. From a drawing in red chalk by H.O.L.B.I.N. in the British Museum print room note how every bit of variety is sought for, the difference in the eyes and on either side of the mouth, etc. If you try and recall a well-known head it will not be the shape of the features that will be recollected so much as an impression. The result of all these combined, a sort of chord of which the features will be but the component elements, it is the relation of the different parts to this chord, this impression of the personality of a head, that is the all-important thing in what is popularly called, catching the likeness. In drawing a portrait the mind must be centered on this, and all the individual parts drawn in relation to it. The moment the eye gets interested solely in some individual part and forgets the consideration of its relationship to this whole impression, the likeness suffers. Where there is so much that is similar in heads, it is obvious that what differences there are must be searched out and seized upon forcefully. If the individuality of the head is to be made telling, the drawing of portraits should therefore be approached from the direction of these differences, that is to say, be things in general disposition and proportion in which your subject differs from a common type should be first sought for, be things common to all heads being left to take care of themselves for a bit. The reason for this is that the eye, when fresh, sees these differences much more readily than after it has been working for some time. The tendency of a tired eye is to see less differentiation, and to hark back to a dull uniformity, so get in touch at once with the vital differences while your eye is fresh and your vision keen. Look out first for the character of the disposition of the features. 
Note the proportions down an imagined center line, of the brows, the base of the nose, the mouth and chin, and get the character of the shape of the enclosing line of the face blocked out in square lines. The great importance of getting these proportions right early cannot be overemphasized, as any mistake may later on necessitate completely shifting a carefully drawn feature and the importance of this may be judged from the fact that you recognize a head a long way off, before anything but the general disposition of the masses surrounding the features can be seen. The shape of the skull, too, is another thing of which to get an early idea, and its relation to the face should be carefully noted, but it is impossible to lay down hard and fast rules for these things. Some artists begin in point drawing with the eyes, and some leave the eyes until the very last. Some draftsmen are never happy until they have an eye to adjust the head round, treating it as the center of interest and drawing the parts relatively to it, while others say, with some truth, that there is a mesmeric effect produced when the eye is drawn that blinds one to the cold blood technical consideration of a head as linen.